Okay, okay, all right. It is the Stazapod. It is freezing cold out, blistering wind, uh, sunny day, but ice everywhere, very dangerous. Please allow extra time for deliveries over these next couple weeks. We've really been uh, getting battered up here. Uh, also, I fell into the stream outside, uh, <laughs> attempting to photograph the Hyper Ice figure for the website, so uh, please appreciate my endless struggle and sacrifice for you guys. Outside of that, this is Destaza Pod. We're going to hop into Q&As in a moment, but uh, I got kind of a crazy plan, and it's starting to come together. Uh, I'm a little hesitant to even talk about it because all this could be sort of canceled or derailed at a moment's notice. However, I am putting together, potentially, an outdoor toy pizza con for this summer. Um, there is a lot of moving parts to this. Some of these elements are going to be beyond my control, but theoretically I have a working project idea that could theoretically allow us to all meet uh, in uh, this local area sometime in the summer and have a kind of like an outdoor flea market slash picnic type of setup. It's not going to be very extravagant. Uh, it's not going to be uh, technologically very interesting. It's going to be literally people throwing blankets on the ground and putting out their wares and all of us just kind of meeting up and swapping figures and, you know, selling exclusives and things like that. It's going to be low, very low, low frills if we can pull it off. But um, that's the sort of thinking today. Uh, if this comes together, I think it will be really magnificent. But again, there's a lot of sort of clearances and, uh, you know, uh, sort of local ordinances and stuff like that I have to deal with and have to sort of fully explore. So I'm not prepared to uh, say that it is 100% happening, but uh, compared to how I felt last week, I, I see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel that we might be able to move towards and hopefully have some kind of in-person event this summer. So uh, fingers crossed on that, and I will keep you guys posted as more details come to light. And uh, just a fair warning, just a heads up, just a caveat, uh, don't ask additional follow-up questions about Toy Pizza Con, when would it likely happen, what are the details, etc., etc., because I don't know the answer to any of those things. So uh, in advance, I'm telling you, no comment, but uh, as soon as I have developments, in this new idea, I will absolutely keep you guys briefed and posted. So uh, with that out of the way, I think it's time to hop into Q&A's. Okay, I said I was gonna hop into Q&A. I lied a little bit. I got a question for you guys. Um, when I was a little kid, I designed this sort of uh, combat game that utilizes characters as a card. And it's very simplistic, and it just uses six-sided die. And uh, I've always wanted to do something with it. And so what I am sort of thinking about doing is making some very, very beautiful-looking Prisma cards. And these will be character cards based on Knights of the Slice uh, people. And you can essentially kind of build a deck, and then we can sort of play test this idea for a very simple dice and card combat game. Uh, is this something you guys would be interested in? Um, the cards are 
relatively expensive to make, so it's not something I can sort of give away for free. But uh, I think we could do something where it is strictly limited to, you know, set quantities. And the people that get the cards are going to be the only people that have them, you know. Um, I think this could be kind of interesting. I would need to, to play test it with you guys to figure out if we got something here. And uh, maybe it's, you know, a little bit of an interesting experiment we could do together. So if this sounds like something in your wheelhouse, let me know in the comments. And uh, maybe we'll get to that sometime in the next couple months. Not that I need more projects, of course, but uh, how can I stop myself? Okay, so the first question is not uh, in chronological order here, but I do think this is the question of the week, and I want to focus on this big time because I think it's uh, really interesting. It hits on a lot of things I've been thinking about, and um, I think people will find this useful. So, Grant Saunders, who, by the way, is a uh, resin casting maniac creating his own toys at home, uh, in, in a sort of fever pitch. You gotta be following this guy. Really fantastic work. Uh, he asked, do you believe that imposter syndrome is inherently part of being an artist, or do you think it varies with the personality of each creative person? I definitely struggle with it as a growing artist. Multiple other artists and musicians I follow have said that they deal with it as well. Perhaps it's a gift and a curse in a way, because I can be way too critical of myself, but I, it also keeps me grounded and looking for ways to better my craft. Um, so I think a lot of things about this question. Um, and it does align well with, you know, just, just generally things that have been swirling around in my brain for a while. So imposter syndrome, for those who don't know, uh, and this is something I only learned kind of recently, is uh, the feeling like you're not good enough at your task or your job or your pursuit and you will be exposed as a fraud usually uh, you know people are imagining in a public way on social media they'll sort of be called out and exposed to be a fraud and they will lose everything they have um, so to start I would say I never had the luxury of thinking about that because that was not a construct that existed when I was coming up as an artist and we do have to look at imposter syndrome as a construct. That means, it, simultaneously, it is sort of make-believe, but it is also real and does have, you know, implications for people. But it is a construct. It's, it's a sort of way of labeling a sort of a nuanced bundle of emotions into an idea. So this is largely man-created, right? If you think, if you meditate about a, a field in nature, there is no imposter syndrome there, right? So this is something we have created in our minds. And that can sort of help alleviate and help defuse this idea. It is not something that is spun off from nature. It is just our own construct that we're imposing on ourselves. Because this wasn't a term that was sort of used as I was kind of finding my way and finding an audience and, uh, you know, doing my artwork, um, I, it never really came into my lexicon. And I got to tell you, I was an imposter, right? Uh, I've told the, the tale many times of how I have faked it till I made it many times over in my career, including lucking into the position at New Line Cinema as uh, director of international licensing and marketing, despite having really no business being in that role. And I eventually was found out 
and my boss threatened to fire me because he could see I was incompetent at the very complex job that I had sort of charmed my way into. Now the good news is I just put my nose to the grindstone and within a matter of weeks I was able to turn it around and become highly competent at that role. But uh, I experienced exactly what I think everybody is sort of afraid of happening. However, this is sort of pre-imposter syndrome construct, so uh, I didn't know that was a thing and it didn't really apply to me. And the bottom line is I persevered beyond that. So as an as a actual imposter, as somebody that is skated by not on the merits of their work, but by luck and charm, uh, I can tell you that imposter syndrome is not really what artists sort of think it is. I view it as part of the more general alienation of modern life within the global capitalist system. Now, alienation is something we all experience, whether or not we're sort of cognizant of it or we perceive it. Uh, alienation can come in many different forms. You may have a friend that lives in your town that has to move for a job, and that detachment can leave you feeling very alienated. The, the fact that somebody can't live in the community that they want to because their financial livelihood is dependent on them moving to the other coast or moving overseas or whatever the case may be, uh, that is an atomizing event and it creates alienation. The fact that we're in year three of a pandemic and people very much need testing all the time and they very much need high quality and 95 masks or better. And the fact that our government, now we've had two different parties occupying the highest office throughout this pandemic, uh, our government has failed to send people masks, send people testing in a reasonable and consistent way. I, I did just see that you can register to receive tests on Wednesday of this week, but you have to go to the government website and you have to actually register. Not everybody has internet access, not everybody has a computer, not everybody is computer literate. So the fact that there are hoops to jump through in order to do that uh, is an abject failure. And it is something that makes me feel alienated from the people in charge. They are not even serving their best interests or the best interests of their citizens. They have a much different agenda that I am detached from. And that is a really good example of alienation. And I think we're all sort of acutely feeling this uh, over the course of the pandemic and the sort of chaos of the past, you know, four to, three to four years. So that's, I think, a good diagnosis of what this is, but it doesn't really tell you how to fix it or what the solution is. And I don't actually know the answer to that other than I know a couple things that have really worked for me. So in terms of creative process and that feeling of alienation or that feeling of being a, an imposter, um, I, you know, I have always wanted to sort of uh, be recognized and have my work published and, you know, have a Marvel comic series or Dark Horse do an art book for me or whatever the, the sort of case may be. I've always really wanted that to happen. And uh, so I've been pursuing that since long before I had anything to say, had any good work that was worthy of these companies or, you know, just had any talent, really. Um, 
And so I kept getting all these rejection letters and turned away. And I showed a friend of mine who was an established artist who made his living off of just doing his comics and his graphic novels. And uh, I really envied him. I really wanted that to be my life. And he took a look at the pitch and he simply said, it, it needs more work. And whenever you don't feel, you know, whenever you, you see somebody else's success or whatever the case may be, whatever negative experience you're having with art or your creative pursuits, you just need to put more work into it. And I think that is a really equalizing idea because regardless of what the external distractions are or negativity, at the end of the day, you just have to sit down and put more time into it. And whether that's a sketchbook, maybe you're doing, you know, a new sketchbook every 30 days, which I've done for many years. Uh, maybe it's a just doodling. Maybe it's a, a very intricate piece that you spend a lot of time on over the course of, you know, years. Whatever the case may be, when you encounter negative feelings in the creative realm, the answer is usually you need to put more time into your work. And uh, that, for me, has been a great remedy and a great relief. In some ways, it's sort of shifting the focus from the external to the internal. And creativity is an incredibly internal, isolated process. So, you know, I, I, I have found that to really be the answer that works for me. I think also, and this is a bit more of a tangent, but... Um, this sort of viral stream of imposter syndrome that, that is really prevalent on social media, I see this as, as running analogous to something like Havana syndrome, right? Uh, this is a sort of, it could be potentially an expression of guilt or an expression of one's station in life being better than other people's station in life. And I think that these things manifest, this guilt manifests itself in different ways. I want to say J.G. Ballard said this, could be wrong, but the suburbs dream of violence, right? And I think that that's a really poignant, beautiful sentence that really surmises the American experience in many ways. You know, we all have sort of relatives that are living in very comfortable, possibly gated communities that are terrified of crime or this idea of home invasion. You know, maybe they're stockpiling weapons, whatever the case may be. We all are related to people like that who probably live in incredibly comfortable circumstances that there's very little chance of these things happening. I think about those Missouri lawyers who, you know, brandish their guns at people walking through their community to a protest. The suburbs dreams of violence. It is that guilt that they have achieved the American dream. They have comfort. They, they live in a beautiful manicured place with nice bright green lawns. Yet, their psyche does not let them rest, does not let them enjoy it. And all these thoughts, they might be universal for Americans. And they are certainly being inflamed by the pandemic where we are seeing the very real visceral discrepancies in healthcare and access to doctors and access to PPE. All these things that, that are playing out in front of our very eyes, poor people dying, working class people dying. 
people not being able to take a day off from work and the following subsequent days uh, after they get a vaccine because they won't, they'll be in bed and they can't sort of make it to work. Like, all these things are vividly on display for all of us. And I know I have some measure of comfort in my life after many years of not having comfort in my life. And I do feel guilty about my station compared to the people I see suffering throughout the pandemic and beyond. And the reality is, I can do very little to change that. But the people in power could. It is a political choice that we allow such a wide chasm between people who have comfort and people who are just being thrown into the thresher to keep the Amazon deliveries on time. So then that begs the question, what do you do to <laughs> ameliorate that terrible feeling, right? Because I think it's very real. I think we're all going through it. Uh, you know, I just go back to the, the stuff that I do that makes me feel better in that regard. And it, it is community-based. It is in my backyard. It is my neighbors. It is on a local level. I have no sway over the decision of the federal government. I think you could argue that Americans have less sway now than ever before. Public policy seems to matter not for any decision-making at the top. So I tend to focus on the community. Uh, for me, that is, there's a free mental health services uh, hub nearby. Uh, you know, I donate as much as I can to them. Uh, the food shelters that are nearby, I'm, you know, always finding out what they need. Uh, if it's something, you know, if it's a material good, I can deliver it or have it delivered. If it's cans they need, if it's masks, whatever the case may be, I can be of help there. Or if they just need cash, you know, that can be arranged too. So, you know, I find focusing on the community within my reach, uh, it might be just sort of, you know, bringing sand to the beach in a lot of respects, but it does make me feel better. So in closing, uh, I would say imposter syndrome is only real if you decide it's real. And that putting more time into the work itself and not paying attention to the externalities of that might just help you kind of mitigate that feeling that, that I think is pretty common for uh, not just creative types, but you know, people that sort of are in a professional class, let's say. Next question from our good friend Jerry Bow. When you are Franken-slicing, do you strictly use parts you have already had on hand to serve your narrative, or have you ever directed the factory to paint a piece in a certain color different from the design of the in-production figure in order to achieve a specific character you have been inspired to build? It's a fantastic question. For those newer to Destazapod or Knights of the Slice, a Franken-slice is a random part hero. It is often cobbled together from multiple different styles of figures to uh, create an entirely new character. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit harder to get than most of our store releases as they are sort of hand-built and put together by me one at a time. So is a Franken-Slice strictly parts that are on hand from previous releases or do I direct the factory to sort of uh, make unique parts in order to do a Franken-Slice later on? The answer is largely 
I would say about 90% of Franken slices are spur of the moment designs. Uh, I sort of lay out all my spare parts and I just start piecing together what feels right, what might be good. However, if I have an enforced site and I have a character that I believe is strong enough, I will absolutely try to shave off a couple pieces uh, from an upcoming figure to uh, sort of scratch that itch. Now, it doesn't happen that often, and I tend not to do it because my tastes change pretty quickly. And a figure that I really liked last year, by the time it gets here and production is over, I may feel differently about how I want that figure to sort of exist. A very good example, which you guys will find out very soon, with the Simov full packs being available, is um, all of the combinations of Simov parts from that first series. Uh, there were specific characters that I didn't even end up using because their parts got diverted to something else to sort of serve the narrative or just, you know, I had an idea I had to chase down. So you'll start to see how those changes were made prior to the public releases of a lot of these figures. As most people have probably pieced together, no pun intended, um, there is a sort of Frankenslice that was purposefully run to be chopped up into lots of different pieces. And you've already seen some of those pieces with our good friend Junkworth, which by the way, not a lot of Junkworth left in stock. I think there's maybe four or five of them. If you haven't gotten a Junkworth, you might want to pick one up. Uh, not all of those pieces have surfaced yet. And that is one very rare figure that I did dice up because I have a specific need, especially for that torso piece. And you guys are going to have to wait and find out what it is. And it just might be something featured in a future action figure of the Millennia Club. By the way, what a great time to mention action figure of the Millennia Club. This is available through patreon.com slash jessedastasio. Uh, there is no running open enrollment in 2022. Once we get to January 31st, our numbers are locked in place, and that is it. There are not going to be other slots available. Now, you can join as a $5 patron and have access to any surplus of Action Figure the Millennia Club figures before they go public. But in 2022, the numbers are going to be very tight. There's not going to be a huge bonus amount that make it to the store in a meaningful way. So if you are locked in place at a $30 tier or the coveted $50 tier, you're all set. You're in good graces. If you haven't renewed or you're thinking about making a move, there's only a few weeks left. January 31st, the doors are closed for good. So keep that in mind. Uh, I think this is going to be a really meaningful year in terms of club figures, but I do think these are going to be very in demand. People are going to find out about the club much later on, and there's not much I can do at that point. So uh, strap in. It's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. Next question from Brett Barnickel. Any chance you could share when you think we might see some classic night styles added to the store? I'm itching to get my hands on one. Thanks. P.S. Fours Clan Crow is a masterpiece. Thank you. Forrest Clan Crow was very well received. I'm glad people like him. He should hang around the store for a while as he is intended to be a sort of, again, no pun intended, evergreen figure. Um, so I don't have any new Classic Knights on order or uh, sort of coming. So that means 
The next new classic nights are likely going to be, uh, you know, second half of the year to be sort of conservative. Um, I do have like a couple random Frankenslice pieces of classic nights, but I do not yet know what shape those will take and, and how they will be put out there to people. So um, I think if you're really hankering for classic nights, uh, I would say, you know, look to the Patreon-only Discord and see if you can trade up for some of those. Uh, I do have some ideas of future classic nights I want to get to. I think I got some relatively interesting ones, but um, it's going to be a little while till we get there. Next question from Matt Connolly. Will you ever offer a live drawing slash music jam via your Twitch stream for us artsy squires? So, um, life drawing is probably not going to happen. I do host life drawing sessions here at my house, but, uh, you know, generally models do not want those things streamed because they really can't control, you know, what happens with, uh, their nudity and, and their poses, uh, if you, you know, add the internet as an element into it. So I do respect their privacy. Uh, also running a life drawing class the way I do it is very intense and I don't want to sort of deal with dealing with streaming on top of that, which is also a very intense thing that demands a lot of attention. So um, not really a, a compatible sort of thing. Theoretically, if somebody else was running the life drawing class and then someone else was running the streaming aspect, uh, it could happen, but because it would fall upon me to do both those things. It's not very likely to, to happen. Uh, regarding music jam, so uh, this may not be what you're asking, but this is an interesting thing I had to find out throughout the pandemic. You cannot actually jam with other musicians over uh, Twitch or Zoom or things like that. The reason being there is a delay. Um, the speed of sound and uh, the process of communicating via video uh, does not allow for an alignment of musical collaboration. Uh, there's a really good video on why this is, and essentially, like, even when you're playing live in a room with another musician, there is a delay. You are hearing their notes, interpreting it, and pressing your notes as well, and there is a microseconds of delay going on, but because you're sort of there and immediate, uh, it, it seems relatively flawless, but when you spread out those two nodes that are that are producing music, uh, that delay becomes more and more untenable. And then if you add something like video conferencing, people being on different coasts, uh, it doesn't work. Now there is a, a really good NPR article, playing music together online is not as simple as it seems. Uh, this came out in July of 2020. And it does point to a software called JackTrip. Uh, this does allow you to kind of sync up and uh, get a little bit closer, you know, kind of avoid the latency that's involved with video conferencing. Um, it seems very, I, I went down this rabbit hole uh, a few months ago. It's very technical and, um, you know, I, <laughs> I was not able to get it to work and also, um, you know, I don't know any other people with the same sort of schedule and free time I have in terms of playing music, so it's kind of a moot point anyway. So um, both those things are really good ideas and concept, but when it comes to the like, 
you know, the nuts and bolts of how does that get managed? Who does the heavy lifting? And uh, technically, how do you pull it off? Uh, both of those become, you know, just uh, near impossible additional workload on top of uh, somebody who's sort of doing everything as it already was. Next question from Lane. How do you take photos for the Night of the Slice web store? I'm learning a bit of photography and was wondering your preference for lightbox, camera model, etc. Thanks in advance. Um, I, you know, the biggest thing when it comes to photography and how I'm able to do it is simply that I've taken hundreds of thousands of photos in my life. Um, some of that was professionally when I was an intern and kind of lower rung employees at, at uh, toy companies. I would take over the toy photography, so that meant hundreds and hundreds of shots per figure that a company was making. Um, all of this became even more sort of solidified when we did Toy Pizza, which required thousands of hours of B-roll footage and very pristine sort of product photography. If you think about a standard episode we would do, sometimes we were doing hour-long episodes. We would feature a dozen different toys. All of those had to be shot and, you know, a video had to be taken of them. So an enormous sort of workload. That, that was really like my Beatles and Hamburg period in terms of figuring out how to do photography, how to shoot toys. Toys are difficult to shoot because it's a very small scale, right? Uh, people don't think about that, but uh, it's much easier to shoot human beings and landscapes and shit like that because that's what cameras are made for. They are not made for something so small. So I, I guess my first tip would be take thousands and thousands of photos, hundreds of thousands of photos if you can. And understand the majority of them are going to be absolute shit, but you will start to see what settings and what process works better for you than most. Uh, in terms of light boxes and things like that, um, you can get stuff off of Amazon. Uh, you do want to have a sort of overhead light and side lighting. Um, I'm kind of hesitant to recommend some of the cheaper Amazon stuff because I've had those spotlights melt and burn down and they're kind of sketchy and dangerous. Um, you know, the, the tools are almost less important than you sort of just doing this over and over again. And I would recommend go down a YouTube rabbit hole, watch a couple, you know, get a couple dozen hours under your belt of watching photography tips. And I, I guarantee you there's toy photography tips, shooting at a small scale photography tips. All of those are going to be much more helpful than just my voice because you will actually get to see uh, on screen how they're achieving these things. Regarding camera, this used to be a really important decision. It is no longer an important decision. In fact, when we started Toy Pizza, we were still shooting on a big Canon Rebel uh, with like a, a card and battery packs and you would have to have a card reader and plug it in and transfer everything over. Now I shoot everything on my phone. My phone is probably three or four years old and it shoots beautiful photos. Um, there's no reason that uh, you can't just use a good top of the line iPhone or Android. That's gonna be more than enough you need, especially considering you're shooting at a small scale and um, you know you, you can only get so much high definition. Another important thing to, uh, a couple more important things to, to bear in mind, 
Um, most phones let you adjust the brightness. So you ideally want your figure sitting on a white background if you're doing sort of e-commerce photography for the purpose of selling. You want a white background and you want to adjust the brightness so that everything sort of blends together. You don't see a seam at the back of the backdrop. You know, you get this really, really pure white. The white balance is super crucial. You want everything to be a pure white that is not sort of the figure or the subject. The other thing is, have some distance between your subject in the foreground and the background. I see a lot of people taking toy photos and the figures are touching the backdrop, right? Maybe they made a diorama they're really proud of. Maybe they're, you know, using some kind of uh, uh, display piece that came with the figure. Put some distance behind it. You want the background to be slightly blurry. You don't want it to be in sharp focus. I see a lot of toy photography also where the figure itself is blurry, but the background is in sharp contrast. And that means your camera is not able to separate between foreground and background, and you need to back up and you need to sort of zoom in and crop to get the desired effect. So don't be afraid to put some some sort of distance between your figure and the backdrop. So hopefully this information helps you. I think really just uh, good photography is the same, the sort of good practices. So just take a deep dive on YouTube, find out who the photographers there that are giving free advice and, and just try to absorb as much of that as possible. But the good news is you really don't need to get a separate camera. Most modern phones are gonna be more than enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wish you luck. Next up, we're entering the Tomimoto zone with Lance Tomimoto and his question as a self-employed individual, how do sick days impact your business and how do you accommodate them? Uh, well, I guess the policy is there are no sick days right? Uh, even if I am sort of bedridden, I'm still working on some aspect of the business, whether it's, you know, updating the website on my laptop or whatever the case may be. Um, as many people know, I have had in this past year a part-time helper that would come in two days a week and do, on, do the uh, sort of labeling of everything that I've packed up. Um, we had quite a few close calls with COVID and her being exposed to people who got sick. Uh, and in those cases, she simply cannot come in. So it was up to me to sort of pick up the slack and uh, print the labels or whatever the other sort of uh, little projects I had her covering would be. Also this year, instead of two days a week, a little bit of part-time help, uh, she's going back to school. So now uh, it is largely just me doing everything. Uh, I still hopefully think she'll be able to come in once a week and handle la the labeling. Um, all this is to say, you know, be patient if, if things uh, are taking a few days to sort of get out to you. I am still leaving dead center on our website the disclaimer that we need seven business days to fulfill every order. Of course, we try to sort of exceed that whenever we can, but uh, not exceed. <laughs> wrong, wrong word. Um, we try to do better than that whenever we can. And, uh, you know, I think that's still going to be the guidelines. So really, uh, you know, you, if I were to sort of be like sick in bed for, let's say a month, if I had something serious, um, 
you know, there's a very real chance my entire business would derail itself. And uh, that is a precarious situation, but there is precarity in all of our lives, I'm sure. Next up is Mike Johnson. Uh, Would you be opposed to sharing the type and shade of paint used on specific figures? I'm asking because my well-loved Bollinger is looking a little rough around the fingers. So, um, even if I were to tell you the Pantone color, uh, I don't think that would be much help. And I can't really tell you a paint brand because Chinese factories have their own proprietary brands of paint. They are not sort of commercial products. Uh, They're not available over here. So, you know, I'm happy to share what I can, but I think really the advice that you need is just to color match. So get yourself a, I would say a cream color or even a white color and get yourself any shade of brown and just experiment with mixing those two colors together together, and put a little dab on your finger, hold your finger up to the toy you're trying to color match. Make sure your lighting is good. You want to be under, you know, as close to sunlight as you can when you do this. But just experiment with mixing those, those colors and those shades until you get one that matches. Um, I, again, I could point you towards a specific Pantone color I use, but I don't think that's going to be much help. It's really going to come down to your eye's ability to discern similarity. So uh, hopefully that may not answer your question to the letter, but in spirit, it helps you get where you need to go. Next question, Isaac Carmen. What approach would you recommend for neighbors who aren't the best? Something like what you suggested for coworkers recently. Um, I mean, we've all been there for sure. Um, you know, it really depends on where you live because I'm in a very rural area. And uh, my girlfriend coming from, you know, being born and raised in Manhattan, couldn't understand why the closest neighbors didn't want to sort of converse or have dinner or get to know each other. And, you know, I grew up in in pastoral Connecticut. <laughs> Not really pastoral, suburb. But, um, you know, things are a little bit different in, in uh, these areas that are a little less densely populated than a place like New York City. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of think high fences make for good neighbors. And I, I stick to that. A lot of people up here just want to be left the fuck alone, right? They don't want to have friends. They don't want to go to dinner parties. They just want privacy. And I understand that. I I think I am certainly inclined to that philosophy. But it is kind of jarring when it comes to, uh, you know, growing up someplace like Manhattan where you're living on top of people and you have no choice but to sort of uh, get to know them, rely on those people. Um, So it can be tough. And, And I think it's really regional. It's based on square footage, like what your strategy is when it comes to neighbors. I do think in any situation, kind of the more privacy you can enjoy and afford other people, the better it will be. Now, it's not always possible. You might have nosy neighbors. You might have intrusive neighbors. Uh, You know, in those situations, I'm just not sure what to do. Uh, You know, I've had a ton of really bad experiences with neighbors. I had one neighbor who tried to kick our door in, wanting to fight everybody. Like, uh, you know, just... Living in in very poor neighborhoods and stuff like that, you're sort of exposed to uh, all the different machinations and combinations of, you know, that socioeconomical condition. The only thing I I could glean from those experiences is 
just I fucking kept my head down, right? Like, didn't really hang around outside, didn't play my music too loud, uh, you know, didn't grill fish <laughs> with the fumes wafting everywhere. You know, I, I, I really, I wish I had more insight here. Um, you know, I, I sort of live on the side of a mountain with a private road because obviously, like, I value my privacy. So uh, I, I might be a little bit out of touch in regards to, to tips on this one. Next up is Charlie Pope, who is asking a near impossible question to answer. Um, who is your favorite advanced Dungeons & Dragons toy from the LJN line? I'm probably super basic, but I absolutely love War Duke. Zarek is a close second. Uh, this is fucking impossible, man, because I, I really think... I, I really, really think AD&D by LJN is one of those just fully realized, unstoppable toy lines from an aspect of character, personality, and color theory, more importantly. Um, I really, I have a very hard time picking. Um, I guess, gun to my head, I would say Bowmark. Uh, Bowmark is, I think, a paladin. Maybe that's his class. He's a good crusader. I'm not sure if that's actually a class. Sounds like a paladin to me. But, um, man, what a fucking great line. Could be one of the, the top ten lines of all time. Just fantastic, fantastic figures. I really liked uh, the later series of which Bomark is a feature because they had these little triggers on their sides that could use, you know, could uh, enable you to use their battle-matic action, but also were holders for their sword or their axe, which... Um, was a very sort of clever feature. Um, I would actually, I might actually be inclined to give the edge to uh, Hawkler, who was a a much more rare figure that I only got maybe a few years ago. Like I've been searching for a Hawkler for a very long time, finally got one. That's a really fantastic figure. I think if I had had that figure when I was a kid, he would easily be my number one. But because I don't have a lot of younger, memories or frame of reference for him. I have to go with Bomark, who, you know, I, I didn't necessarily have him as a kid. I had only kind of the Wave 1 figures, but Bomark came into my life really during, like, the eBay renaissance of, you know, we're talking 1998, 99, probably around there. I started to rebuy vintage toys, and, you know, you could score amazing lots for, like, 20 bucks. And uh, I got to build up a little bit of an AD&D collection, and Bowmark was one of those figures that I was just like, oh, this is so fucking cool. Um, I also clipped off, he has this kind of tuning fork on his head, which I clipped off because I thought it looked a little bit goofy, and I kind of prefer the look of the character that way. So um, I think that's my answer. I'm going to have to go with that one. Really fantastic line. Um, So many good picks. Excellent question. Next question from Thomas Bushi. Whatever became of the Thousand Toys, Knights of the Synth, Rebel, and Vice Knight figures? Uh, they never happened. We had sort of paint masters. We showed them at one or two shows. Uh, I think largely the makeup of Thousand Toys changed. There were some key staff who left shortly thereafter. 
and you know I think that sort of put the project in limbo and at this point I I hold no hope that they will get made although I love uh, the Thousand Toys family would never say no to working with them in the future but I think realistically uh, the time has passed Next question from Gabe Tovar. What do you think you would be doing right now if Knights of the Slice did not find the success to continue on as it has now? Do you think you would still be involved in toys in some way, or would you be venturing into something else? Uh, I think largely the the makeup of my world would be the same. Uh, if Knights of the Slice had been a failure, I would have moved on to doing Rex Gannon and Vaughn. That was sort of uh, already in the shoot... Um, when I didn't have initial success with Knights of the Slice, and I was seeing sort of pretty dismal, uh, store reports, sales reports, I started to already kind of mentally pivot into what my next project was going to be. Now, back then, I had full-time employment, uh, you know, working in licensing, working as an agent, uh, all those different things that were generating enough money to keep me afloat and give me a little bit spare cash that I could invest in toy making. So probably would have taken a year off, developed new figures, and come back and launched outside of Knights of the Slice. Now if there's not sustained success with Knights of the Slice, it would probably take me longer to sort of cultivate an audience. Would it take me longer to get on Patreon or have a reason to be on Patreon? But I think really like, you know, in a lot of ways, everything I've done in my life has been pointing to what I'm doing right now. Whether it's, uh, you know, my ability to sort of stream and hopefully uh, provide something interesting in terms of live entertainment that people seem to like and enjoy. Uh, I don't see the makeup of that really changing. Maybe I would just be more streaming games and things like that. But, you know, I got the gift of gab as a blessing and a curse. Um, I would probably still be working with clients in the licensing space uh, because that is very lucrative and if I didn't find my footing with selling toys I would have need to have kept all those clients in order to sort of supplement my hobby which would have been sort of making toys and stuff like that but you know I think largely I feel fully aligned I feel like I'm actualized in the place I'm supposed to be in my life and I think you could tweak a couple different uh, elements of the past six or seven years, but largely I believe that I'm where I'm supposed to be and I, I would have found my way here, although in kind of a different configuration, if that makes sense. Quick sidebar here, I want to give a shout out to Josh Guerra who recommended to me The Terror, which is a show I've wanted to watch for a very long time, but um, just never got around to doing. He really insisted I do it. I'm glad he did. It is a fantastic show. I haven't watched season two. I understand it's an anthology and they change settings and things like that. But uh, I'm like four episodes into season one. It is fantastic. If you if you like shows like Rome and I don't know uh, t- the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, all those actors are in the Terror. It's really a, a phenomenal cast. Uh, it is pretty spooky. But um, it's more psychological, I think. It's, it's getting more and more sort of horror-esque as the episodes progress. But really fantastic show based on a true story. Not that that means very much in Hollywood and storytelling. But um, I love it. So I thought I'd recommend it. I'm sure you guys have probably already seen it. I'm pretty late to the boat on this one. 
And when I say boat, again, no pun intended. Had a great comment from our good friend Gary Arnold. This was in a non-Q&A thread, but I thought it was worth talking about. Uh, so, Cyber Mama Full Packs. These are sort of very limited version of Cyber Mama figures from the past that are all bagged with every single part. Now, this is uh, how they're shipped to me when there's a paint sample. And then different parts get separated and used in different things. You know, uh, I have a every part of the Buffalo philosophy for toy making, so that means I'm oftentimes uh, atomizing a single figure and utilizing its parts to build things like Franken slices, which we talked about earlier on the pod. So, uh, in regards to this recent Saima full pack offer for patrons, Gary says, This is my preferred way to buy Knights of the Slice and all Glyos figures for that matter. Please consider making a small number of complete factory bag figures available for every new figure. Um, this is a fair point and a more than fair request. I am certainly open to doing this in the future, but there are some caveats along with that. One is, I can only sort of sell these figures after an entire cycle of production has run its way through. I've sold every Saima figure I've made to this point, and so there's no spoilers involved in these full packs being put out there. There might be one or two small accessories that never got a public release in a certain color, but largely the secrets are not going to be spoiled by having these full packs out there. Uh, so that's the caveat number one. It would only be able to happen after I've worked through an entire cycle of product, which can take years. Uh, the other thing is I'm not going to be able to do full pack sales um, if that's an item that sells out, right? If everybody buys the official public version of a figure, there's not going to be any uh, sort of full packs left over necessarily. So that's another sort of point to consider. What I'm not going to do is sort of run a separate version of public figures that include all the pieces because that can stymie my narrative and that can spoil surprises that I may have for people. Um, there are some Frankenslices that will be in Action Figure of the Month, uh, sorry, Action Figure of the Millennia Club. And uh, if a full pack goes out before that crate ships, it's going to ruin the surprise X, Y, and Z. So, um, you know, I like where your head's at. I, it, it's sort of too crucial of a part of my business, this ability to do Franken slices and to split up figures to mean different things, um, that I'm, I'm just not able to fully integrate that into the business. But great point all the same. Next up from Sean Gordon, how do you balance the backlog of older ideas you've had for figures and or story with a spur of the moment inspiration for something completely new? Um, you know, it does take a sort of patience, right? And patience is not a artist's natural strength at all. You have to sort of learn discipline. I think that the artist's mind starts off in just pure chaos and impulse and id, you know, doing what you want when you want to. Um, now that I'm in my uh, old decrepit age, I can sort of separate 
you know, a backlog of ideas and new inspiration um, and not feel the necessary pressure to uh, focus on one or the other. Because ultimately, in my mind, it's all part of the same story, right? It's all my body of work. So does it matter if I, you know, move to doing uh, the next chapter of the Cray story this month? Or is it more important that I focus on a new character that's coming out? There's not really um, a sort of negativity in my mind about that choice because it's all great for me. It's all me advancing the larger story uh, of, you know, my time here on Earth. So uh, I, I don't find those things to be in competition. Instead, they kind of work in unison and, um, you know, I, I guess a good, powerful moment of inspiration, you know, those ideas that hit me like a lightning bolt, those are always going to take priority just due to sheer excitement. And one thing about Knights of the Slice that I think is unique and really meaningful is the immediacy, right? I can have an idea for a character and that character could be put up on the store and for sale within a few days with a, you know, short story written behind it. That sort of uh, direct from the artist's brain to your toy shelf, that doesn't really exist in this world. And uh, I think that that's like part of the interesting, uh, you know, one of the interesting aspects of collecting this line, hopefully. So yeah, I would say that I, I don't struggle to balance them because I don't see those as forces in contention with each other. They're actually in harmony with one another. Next up from Gavin Raider. This may have been asked before, but I don't recall for certain. Crow Mega's eyes have yet to see paint added to them. I've interpreted it as a choice based on the stylized squint that he seems to have. Could you explain the reason for unpainted eyes on Crow? Uh, yes, it's exactly that. This is a character that is sort of squinting. Uh, interestingly enough, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, you can go into a very deep rabbit hole about eye sizes in early humans. I'm not just talking Homo sapiens. Uh, there are a bunch of different theories about why human beings, Homo sapiens, uh, sort of survived due to our relative smaller eye size compared to the ne ne Neanderthals and uh, other early European humans. Uh, one of the theories being that uh, the larger eyes in the, the sort of, uh, you know, human species that, that had an earlier demise uh, took up too much brain computing power for seeing at night and low light vision and things like that. Whereas uh, the Homo sapiens, they had more computing power, theoretically, to work on things like stitching clothing and, you know, uh, sort of more survival-based uh, critical thinking. So very interesting. Um, you know, I always like to do deep dives on history whenever I'm kind of developing a character or letting that stuff kind of infuse and inspire me. Next question here from John Emmett. What exactly happens when product has to be destroyed? I'm thinking of the recent ending of the RoboForce Glios line. 
I believe I read any unsold product would have to be destroyed. Um, you know, for the specifics of that, you really would have to talk to John Kent. I, I couldn't possibly weigh in. I have no idea what the sort of arrangements he has are. However, having worked in licensing, having been on the periphery of things like copyright infringement cases where goods are seized, uh, and also in my own production where there is scrap, uh, you know, unusable sort of outputs from a mold, I can give you a little bit of insight into that process. Um, essentially, goods are put into a thresher, a giant metal maw with teeth that just shred everything within an inch of their lives. Uh, there are some YouTube channels dedicated to seeing if uh, putting different objects in a thresher will actually demolish it. Uh, spoiler alert, most things do get demolished in it. And uh, that is usually the process of what has to happen. But again, I can't really comment on RoboForce. I have no idea, you know, what the uh, sort of contracts or uh, deals in place are. So um, go check out Toyfinity. Maybe they can clue you in. Oh, and also it's important to note uh, when plastic goods are destroyed, the last thing you want to do is sort of burn them or set them on fire, right? That's going to activate a lot of really nasty chemicals into the air. So uh, threshing it into just uh, tiny little shredded pieces of plastic, that is the ideal thing. Next question from Quentin Russo. As a kid, I struggled to catch all the best morning cartoons. Gem and the Holograms, I typically tune out with my action figures. It became my morning ritual, aka my mother's work schedule. Being four years old, it can be somewhat traumatic experience, knowing she'd leave, but eventually come back. I say this because she passed away about two years ago. Makes you appreciate the little things, you know? I bought the Gem Super 7 figures mainly for nostalgia, but I've grown to appreciate the series. I'm a sucker for 80s synth. Uh, anyways, my question is, could we see a Technicolor slash New Wave Saimos similar to the series? I'm not asking for an homage, but something wild with random patterns. Pizza out. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm very sorry to hear about your loss, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, I had kind of a similar... Um, experience with cartoons um they didn't seem to play beyond the first season of anything in my local area i don't know if other people had this experience but like when i talk to matt dowdy for example he talks about all these se different seasons of gi joe and transformers and i never saw any of those i only ever saw the first season of most cartoon series i didn't even know um about these sort of later series until, uh, you know, I got into my adult years. I I'm not sure if it was just the market that I was in, but these things really only played for like one season or so. And then uh, their times got changed and new cartoons came on. Um, so I, I am always sort of surprised when I uh, hear about these sort of later season things and events that happened, I really have a very sort of small frame of reference. The good news is uh, I am by no means done making Cyber Mama figures, so I think over a long enough timeline there could definitely be something uh, in that realm on the market. I don't actually know what my next Saima order is going to be, so I'm sort of in the fun planning stages of that. 
Uh, I actually don't know what her story is next. You know, we left things with uh, quite a cliffhanger. So I, I guess this year will answer those questions for us both. Have you guys heard about this uh, coronavirus? This stuff is wild. Uh, slight update. I know I talked about this earlier in the pod. My one-day-a-week helper has COVID. So uh, the very little help that I receive from the outside world is out of commission. Uh, also, as I'm staring out the window, another fucking snowstorm is here. My God. Not not really great setting when you're watching The Terror on, uh, on Hulu. <laughs> you don't really want that mimicked in your real life. But uh, I'm going through it right now. So what does this mean? Uh, give me some extra time to get these packages out. Uh, when it is this level of snowy and icy, it is actually difficult for me to get out to the workshop and stay there for very long. And then also, uh, deliveries are not always possible during these inclement weathers. We actually, I can't remember if I mentioned this or not, we had a FedEx truck spin out on our treacherous driveway and almost go over into the ravine. So, um, I'm going to be stuck here for a while, and uh, I would urge extra patience uh, during this time of year. It's uh, it's going to be a while until I can dispatch everything. But with that out of the way, uh, let's go to our last question before conditions worsen even more. We got Gary Arnold here, and he's got a hypothetical. He says, hypothetically, if you decided tomorrow to hit the creative reset button, Completely rebrand your toy company and start from scratch with a new line of figures. In what direction could you envision going as far as genre, scale, glios or non, etc.? So let's say I sell Knights of the Slice to Disney, right? Uh, which is uh, probably not very likely. <laughs> but let's say I do. And uh, I'm going to just hand it all over and I am forced to start from scratch and build something. So. I actually, I saw this question from Gary yesterday and I took 24 hours to sit and think about it because I think it's a really great question. Um, I think what I would do is do something completely different. And the logical next step, I think, would be six-inch figures, but that's not terribly compelling to me. And I don't know that I have anything more to add to this six-inch figure dialogue. I I don't have anything profound to say there. Also, considering we have six slash seven inch figures with our thousand toy collaboration, and those guys are some of the best toy designers in the world, it's like, what would be the point, right? How, how would I do better than that? And if I can't do something better or different, I don't really want to pursue something. So ultimately, I think what I would land on is a complete idea out of left field that maybe it would work, maybe it wouldn't work. Who knows? But I would like to do diecast cars and something with a figural element to it. You know, maybe if you imagine the dolls figure with Sen 5, maybe something that integrates little uh, Keshi style figures with diecast vehicles. Uh, that could be something pretty interesting, I think. So, uh, you know, gun to my head, I think that's what I would pick to do. Uh, will I ever get there? Probably not. We're going to be making Nice to Slice for a very long time. But uh, it's a very interesting hypothetical. And, you know, I think um, artists should be sort of asking themselves that question a lot. If it all burns down tomorrow, 
what do you rebuild as a new thing, right? Like, I always think about like, um, you know, toy artists who had very early success, like Ugly Dolls or Shaunamals or the people that were sort of coming up when I was just a student sort of curating my subcultures art show. And all those people just did, they had their singular character or titular idea and they just did that. And they had success doing it. And I think that my inability to focus on a single theme or single character has been to my detriment uh, in terms of visibility or fame or money. But it's been a strength for me in terms of just feeling fulfilled, right? But I do think that artists kind of get obsessed or dug in on one thing, one concept. And a lot of times when young aspiring toy designers reach out to me and they show me their stuff, I encourage them to just do something, now start from scratch, do something completely the opposite of what you're doing. And I, I think it, it can be a sort of useful methodology, even if you never end up using the start from scratch plan B idea, um, you should be flexible enough as an artist and as a designer to throw everything out and completely redo it. I think that there there is a very valuable things you learn about yourself in forcing that sort of uh, limitation on yourself. So with that, I'm going to leave you guys. I have to go uh, begin my third day of shoveling to attempt to stave off the ice. Um, supplies are low. I've run out of uh, the uh, salt that I use to uh, fight the ice. Uh, the canned meats are no good. I, I think I'm Everybody's getting lead poisoning around here. The monkeys, the captain's monkeys has died. Sorry to tell you guys this. Um, so things are not good. The walls are closing in. But uh, I will persevere. This is, you know, a winter uh, much like every other. I've, I've, uh, I've survived before. So uh, I bid you adieu. I will catch you on the other side. And... Um, the only thing left to say is peace out and watch for my signal flare.